Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. Actually, word balloons can, in a very interesting kind of sensitive way, reproduce speech patterns. So where you place them on a panel affects when you read them, how fast you read them, how you break up text, give a sense of you know, pacing, tone of voice, like all, all these kinds of things. Obviously, it's not the same as audio where you actually hear it, but it's one reason why it works pretty well for Out on the Wire and for you know, books about audio is that you, you can get closer than you can with straight up text. Welcome to It's All Journalism. I'm Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media and those who produce it. This time around, we're going to be talking about two of my favorite things, graphic novels and podcasting. On Skype with me today is Jessica Abel, an author, cartoonist, and podcaster. She's known mostly for her graphic novel, La Perdida, and her instructional books, Drawing Words and Writing Pictures, and Mastering Comics. She's also the author of a very cool book, Out on the Wire, The Storytelling Secrets of the New Masters of Radio a graphic novel about the production of such radio shows as This American Life and Radiolab. Well, welcome to the podcast, Jessica. Thanks. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, cool. So, well, first of all, let's talk about your uh, career as a graphic novelist. How did you become a graphic novelist? What, what got you interested in it? I've been a cartoonist for a long time and doing all kinds of comics since, like, the early 90s, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, started doing comics when I was in college in uh, student anthology and stuff. And I guess the reason I got into making comics is because I was really into reading comics. And then there was a certain point at which and, – and I can actually you know, say pretty accurately. It was like a moment when I, when I read the, the book Love and Rockets mm-hmm. that I went – I sort of changed sides. And instead of just being a reader, I wanted to be a maker. Um, and I think that's because the it's the first thing I had read that was very like it dealt with real people, real stories in in a real world. And I had never really, you know, I'd, I'd been reading superhero comics and fantasy things and whatever, and it was just really compelling to me. And, and something in that sort of spoke to you and say, hey, this is, you know, I, I'm just not going to be a reader. I'm actually going to be, you know, this is a way that I can express myself. Yeah, well, I felt like it was um, Jaime Hernandez in particular was creating characters who I felt like I wanted to know them, you know, and, and I wanted to, I wanted there to be more stories like that in the world and kind of set out to do that. And so what were, what was your, you, you set out to do this and what was, what were some of the, the directions you were going when you were in school as far as the comics you were doing? They were very much like, well, they're kind of all over the map. I mean, there's actually a book collection of comics that I did, not when I was in school, but soon afterwards. Mm-hmm. A big thread of them were these kind of kitchen sink kind of quotidian tales of people, young, very young people going through very youthful kind of crises and stuff and, you know, all fiction. But there was also um, a large number of more experimental things that I was doing, slightly longer fiction, you know, one pagers that were funny and weird and all kinds of stuff, really. So when did you sort of cross over into the nonfiction realm? That wasn't for a number of years, actually. And it was as a result of being asked to do it. It wasn't my idea. (laughs) Um, It was, uh, let's see, in 94, I want to say, 
So I graduated in 91 and I was making my own sort of mini comics all along there. And somewhere in 94 or so, there's an art director who I met, um, a local free tabloid in Chicago called The New City. Mm -hmm. And George Colombo was, who's a, a very accomplished illustrator who, you know, is now, you see him all over Instagram and stuff. He does really beautiful stuff. Anyway, he was the um, art director at the time. And he, the New Yorker actually had been running short strips. I feel like they were less than a page long of sending cartoonists to events and other sort of talk of the town type stuff. Yeah, I remember that. And... It was a short-lived experiment over there, but Georges really liked the idea and liked my comics and asked me to do some of that. So I did a few over a number of years, like maybe four years or so. I did a number of sort of one or two page strips for this tabloid paper, which, you know, a page is huge in a tabloid. So it was actually, they're, you know, fairly substantial, but quite short strips really in the scale of like out on the wire, those kinds of things. And, um, and that was how I started. And then I started doing a um, a one-page, a back-page strip in my alumni magazine mm-hmm. at the University of Chicago in the late 90s. And I did that for about six years. And that's a bi-monthly or was a bi-monthly magazine. I don't know what they're doing now. So that was quite a number of strips. Mainly all of these things were like, you know, women on the scene, you know, on the street kind of reporting, mm-hmm. not you know, major investigative, whatever. I did do a few like six pagers for the UC magazine, which was, which was fun and different. So what was it you were learning in there? This is something you did, I guess, in concert with the the fiction that you were doing. Was it scratching a, a different part of your brain or was it? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, doing journalism or just research nonfiction in any way is, you know, good writing is good writing to a certain extent, but it's, it's very, very different dealing with a set of established facts and people and material and having this material and needing to sort it and, and filter it and figure out what you think about it. That's very, very different than inventing something whole cloth. Mm-hmm. And I liked doing both. I liked being able to go back and forth. It seemed like a really logical way to kind of, you know, when you sort of got tired of one thing, I could do the other thing. And the nonfiction was never central. You know, it was always sort of a sideline. Also paid money, which was nice. And the (laughs) fiction barely ever does. So, you know, I did all of these things because I was paid to do them, not because it was some internal mission, you know? Mm -hmm. What do you like about being a cartoonist, about telling stories in that way? Well, I think that, that comics, like all art forms, have strengths and it has weaknesses. And some of the strengths are that it's highly, highly compressed. So you can convey a lot of information, and especially nonverbal information, very quickly. We humans have very visually oriented brains, and we pick up all kinds of clues, all kinds of stuff from a visual presentation that would take pages and pages and pages of verbal description to get close to. Um, So it's really good at putting you in a place. It's really good at conveying subtext to dialogue via body language, expression, as well as the way that you break up text with word balloons, which to some people who sort of people who are uninitiated that can feel word balloons can feel um, like 
cheesy or something. Mm-hmm. You know, well, you know? sort of sort of hokey, sort of like little, childish, little hokey. maybe. And like, that's yeah. certainly how they're used in like ads and things like Biff Bang Pow and like you know whatever. But actually, word balloons can, in a very interesting kind of sensitive way, reproduce speech patterns. So where you place them on a panel affects when you read them, how fast you read them, how you break up text between word balloons can give a sense of, you know, pacing, tone of voice, like all, all these kinds of things. Obviously, it's not the same as audio where you actually hear it, but it's one reason why it works pretty well for Out on the Wire and for, you know, books about audio is that you, you can get closer than you can with straight up text to getting that rhythm and, and cadence of speech. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess what you're saying is you're playing with t- you're able to play with time a lot. You, you mentioned before sort of compressing thing, but you can also you can stretch out actions that would normally take longer or or pull them in tighter or, you know, jump, jump through time much more easily. Yes, you can stretch out time and those kinds of things, definitely. But you also um, to play with pace. Yeah, it's pacing and it's it's cadence. Yeah. You know, so you can make words larger and smaller and, you know, there's, there's various things you can do where you literally are able to connect to sound voice as we hear it Mm -hmm. in a way that if you tried to do that in prose, it really does look super cheesy. Like it looks really weird, Mm -hmm. you know, lots of ellipses and, you know, big spaces and maybe using too many paragraphs and, you know, using bold and stuff too often and, whatever. Like there's lots of things that don't really work in prose in that way. So it's really good at that. What it's not so good at is it's not that good at hard information, like, like dense, you know, know where there's lots of data, you know, it really kind of breaks down there because if you have to sort of be able to see kind of like a big chart of data or really understand all these things like that, you can't do that. It's not really great either at a lot of like internal internal monologue or narration, you have to limit that quite a bit. You can use it, but you can't just have like pages and pages of Of the narrator talking. Right. It just gets really dull. So, you know, that's a limitation for sure. Because you need to have it something that's also visually, you know, it's just somebody walking down a street with, with, uh, you know, thought bubbles for panel after panel after panel is probably very boring to look at. It's not, not quite as engaging, even maybe if the thoughts are really interesting. Yeah, it's it not works. that engaging, but also it's it's not – it doesn't – I mean what you can do with that, and I have done this before, is have like a sort of internal monologue going on and you have something else going on visually and the two things conflict in some way. And that can be a very rich way of using it. But what's not is when, you, when you're relying on words to tell the reader what a scene or a, a, or a story is about. If you're really relying on the words, then you are going to bore people and it's going to feel like – show it's going to feel like telling and not showing yeah good good comics reading good comics whether it's something serious or light or or something you know nonfiction or or fiction it, you know things where the where the words in the you know it's like a dance that they the, the words in the pictures they they go together they they move the plot together they 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 complement each other they they work against each other they work with it they, they sort of you know un, unravel the story together Mm-hmm. Uh, good comics. So, yeah, I know what you were me- meaning be- before where you were talking about, I- I've read some nonfiction comics where, you know, it's it's really good and, and great with the character inter- interaction, but then suddenly you get to this point where whatever the point of the of the nonfiction news angle out, suddenly there's this like, you know, paragraphs of 
of context of history to sort of flesh something out. It's not even really kind of worked into the narrative. It's just like, okay, here's all this information that's really important for you to understand. Right. Like let's pull back and have, you know, a paragraph of, you know, historical context. And really like that's, it's a sign that you either, it's just not a great fit for comics or what you really need to do is spend a chapter drawing that. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can't just kind of lay it out in a bunch of paragraphs. I mean, you can, but, but you alienate people from the story. Yeah, you're not working. I remember reading a comic book. Oh, gosh, it was in the in the 80s. And it was it was a regular superhero comic book st- series. And then they had, a, they had an annual. And it was it was the, the, the writer decided he wanted to write out a story. So it was the whole thing was was text with a couple of illustrations. And I never bothered to read it because it just you know, never struck me as something I, that... I was engaged in it. I came there with certain expectations. And so here's this whole other medium. And I was like, eh, it's not for me. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I found like, for example, I was experimenting with something when in the nineties, just for one, you know, short bit where I was writing a story, I wrote a short story or wrote a chapter, and then I would intersperse bits of comics mm-hmm. into the story. So it would be like a, you know, and it was handwritten, like a couple of handwritten pages of story and then, or like a, whatever, two thirds of a page. And then a third of a page would be a comic strip that would actually continue the story. So you'd have to read it continuously. So like you read the two Mm -hmm. paragraphs and then you read the strip and then there's an illustration and then there's some more text and then there's another strip. And uh, the problem is that people like comics so much more than they like prose that you never read it in the right order. You know, (laughs) like it's just so much more fun to read a comic and so much easier to read a comic that you just like skip the hard part. <laughs> so you're working against yourself. So. Yeah, exactly. So that didn't that didn't fly. Well, now you mentioned um, out on a wire. Actually, it was out on the wire, mm-hmm. uh, which was a podcast, but it was also a book that you did about. Well, well, why don't you tell me what it was about? It was like Radio Lab and this, this American Life. And well, it's um, out on the wire is a, a book that I did published in 2015 that essentially was a started out as a reworking of a book that I did earlier in 1999 with Ira Glass called Radio and Illustrated Guide. Which I read uh, in, in grad school, as a matter of fact, to be honest. Really? Yes. Awesome. A lot of people did. I mean, this is one <laughs> of the reasons I did it is that like I kept hearing from people who, you know, that it really affected them, that it was really, you know, important to them, that they had learned a lot from it. And, you know, I felt like there was really something to that. I met people who became radio producers because of my book. And that was... You know, as a cartoonist, you don't usually get that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I cha- you changed my life. I'm like, oh, okay, <laughs> hooray! I, you know, I mean, I felt really proud of it. I feel, I still feel really proud of that book and what we did with it. I think it's a really good book, but it's very short. It's only 30 pages of content, mm-hmm. and really, it's it's called Radio and Illustrated Guide. It is radio and illustrated guide. It is an illustrated guide to how to make this American life, and you know, similar kinds of programs, as you know, circa 1999. Although they're actually made in an extremely similar way now. And so, you know, I feel like there was there was really, you know, given how effective it had been and how much people had gotten out of it, there was clearly like a, a need for it, this book to exist. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'll expand it and like make it into a more, you know, significant kind of guide. And and I actually went to Ira with that idea and he was just like, no, not going to do that. Nope, nope, nope. Uh, like he, you know, he thought that the idea of, doing more with the book was great, but it had been so demanding, so much work for him. 
and he's just such a busy guy. He's mm-hmm. got so much stuff going on that he just was not up for getting back into that with me. And in conversation with him, we came up with this idea to basically expand the palette and talk about other shows and what other shows are doing. And as I went further with it, I was like, well, really, you know, Radio Neil Story Guide, as old as it is, really does tell the story pretty well of like what are the technical stages and phases that go into making narrative audio. Mm-hmm. And I didn't need to make that book again. But what I didn't know and didn't understand and what it didn't cover was conceptually, what did these great producers do? What do they know that the rest of us don't know that helps them make work that's so great? What are the decisions that they make? What are the criteria that they they use? And so that is what became Out on the Wire. And, you know, it's subtitled The Storytelling Secrets of the New Masters of Radio. And that's why, because it really is intended to be like, here are the secrets. Like, here's how you do it. Like, if you want to make audio that's as strong as what you hear on Radio Lab or Snap Judgment or This American Life or The Moth, you know, these are the things that these people look for. This is, you know, what they do. And, and I think, I feel like it's fairly successful at that. But at the same time, I also knew that, you know, even in Radio and Illustrated Guide, I wasn't actually only talking about radio. You know, I was also talking about, I felt like the stages that went into making audio, although certain of them, like how do you record, had no relevance at all to comics. Plenty of things did. And one of the things I enjoyed the most was translating this entirely audio medium to images and creating metaphors, visual metaphors for audio things, audio elements. And those visual metaphors actually, I think, are incredibly instructive about how comics work. And so that was really a pleasure for me. And so I knew with this book, I also wanted to do that kind of thing where embedded in this, in the book is also kind of the story of how do you, you know, what's important for any kind of narrative, not just audio. So can you give me an example of what would be a metaphor that you would use in this context? So now you're asking me to do, to translate back into uh, audio. <laughs> well, just tell me the audio part and then I'll know. Well, okay. My, the one I always talk about, cause it's the most clear when I'm doing talks about this is there's a scene where Ira is talking about in radio and industry guide where Ira is talking about soundtracking mm-hmm. and how do you sound, soundtrack an interview and how do they think about sound and so Elise Spiegel is, is training their intern, Jorge Just, how to do this. And she talks in the interview about how what you do when somebody says something especially important is you drop the music out. You go dry in audio terms. That's what they call it. And then Ira pops in, sort of this character Ira who sort of can – I call him meta Ira. He shows up, you know, sort of in front of all the other – like in front of the actualities, the quotes. Sure sort of the narr- narration Jim- Ira. Jiminy Ira. Yeah, he's, he's the narrative yeah. Ira. He's the one who gets to do the narrator voice. And, you know, there's, narr- there's a narrator, Jessica, too. And he pops in front and says, oh, you know, this thing is, this is amazing. I had to figure this out by trial and error, but this is totally true. You know, when, you, when something's important, you just, you drop all the other sound and, you, and it's like shining a light on it. And in that panel, and so the panels above are super busy with all the stuff going on. He's in the foreground, they're in the background. Everybody's talking at the same time. All the stuff's happening. And then in the panel where he says where it's like shining a light on it, I drop everything except for Ira. So there's no background in the panel. Mm-hmm. And it's very clearly like he's spotlighted. Mm-hmm. 
which is a technique that you see in comics as well. You, you Sure. Yeah. You, and that's what I'm saying is like, this is, it's a way of talking about storytelling in general. Like what, right. how does storytelling work? Like how could you translate this technique to prose? You know, I don't know, but like, I'm sure you could. And almost everything that I do when I talk about narrative in this way has analogs in other media. Mm-hmm. And I'm really interested in, in talking about those analogs and helping people understand, you know, how to do these things better, which is where, of course, the podcast comes from. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, people who don't regularly read comics may not be aware that there's a whole language, there's a whole, you know, history behind the way certain images are composed and, and elements are used. I mean, I think it was what um, Scott McCloud has written books about it, about, you know, the different types of narrative techniques and ways. As have I. I have two textbooks about it. I know, and I I was just going to get to that. (laughs) But we're talking about this other thing. Well, let's talk about that, the the two textbooks that you did. Now, are those primarily for people who want to do comics or people to understand comics? Well, once again, they are totally intended to be textbooks for cartoonists to learn how to make comics, right? Mm -hmm. But also, sneakily, I think they talk about how visual art works, you know, how the juxtaposition of words and pictures works. They are very, very relevant and helpful for people who want to learn how to read comics better. So people who are either just like comics or are doing scholarly work with comics, I think they're really helpful for that. So, you know, in general, I feel like what my work has taught me across the board is how much various narrative forms have in common Mm -hmm. and, you know, how much we can learn kind of from each other. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the same. We're all processing it with the same organ, with the, with the brain. It's, right. It's how and you pick I mean, it in, making it, it is a different question than consuming it. But if you, the more as a consumer, the more you know about the making, the more you're going to be able to get out of it. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. The more I quote unquote studied comics, the more I began to understand things like pacing and you know, spotlighting, things like that, that you, you were talking about, mm-hmm. um, the, the greater appreciation, I, you know, for example, you know, having 20 years difference between when I first read Watchmen and re- reading it 20 years later and then seeing, oh, okay, or there's a lot more going on here that I'd never picked up just in the way the story is written. Yeah, well, that's a classic example of like so much going on, you know. Yeah, is definitely. A very dense. <laughs> dense very densely, yeah. I mean, dense tome. Alan Moore, the author, uh, the, the writer, is famous for just like incredible incredibly detailed long scripts full of like in- all kinds of description and you know total control over his artists essentially and he's also he's very much a formalist and uses the formal properties of the medium to tell the story and what's funny about that is he's also like a super genre art author like he's not you know cuz like my husband Matt Madden is also a formalist and he's really an amazing cartoonist but he has zero interest in superheroes or mm-hmm. whatever. You know, he's doing stuff that's much more thinky than that. And, you know, his stories are very emotional and, and fun and, you know, all those kinds of things as well. But they're, they're never, they don't have those genre elements in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly. But, you know, that was, that was part of the thing. That was why he was telling the story the way he was because he was doing a riff on the genre. Um, yeah, but, I mean, he always does that. And that's what's funny to me is that he just seems like, you know, what is it about genre? Like he seems like his real interest is in formalism, but what he uses it for is the, are these genre stories, like where, really deep genre. Where he kind of blows them up. And what's funny is then he turns around and, and objects to, you know, the, the form being, you know, adapted into like movies or whatever, partially because 
It was created as, it was told as a comic. It is what it is. And by translating it into some other medium, you know, we were before talking about, you know, how to take audio and, and turn it into text. You know, how do you take a comic and then are you going to lose something in that translation? Well, that I think is valid. I mean, that's that's the same way Matt feels about his work. And he's right. You know, you can't actually capture what's interesting about his work if you were to translate it into film or some other form. You could maybe transpose it and come up with something else interesting. Right. But it would not be interesting for anywhere near the same reasons that and that's interesting too because like that is not the case with me because my work although it <laughs> does it. <laughs> it does rely on formalism to a certain extent I'm probably more formalist than some cartoonists are like it's very narrative it's about people and voices and it's it's much easier to to go back and forth for me than for somebody like Alan Moore or like Matt who Matt Madden who are formalists and they can feel frustrated by people's attempts to, you know, sum this up by plot. Plot is not the point. Mm -hmm. So, so much not the point for those guys. Plot and narrative. They, they look at it and they say, oh, well, yeah, I can do that. But the, the fact is, even a film is a artistic form and, and you need to, you know, you need to tell a, a film story. You, you see that sometimes when people who are like, TV directors and they go into the big screen and they have sort of trouble making that transition because they're kind of composing things in the, in the same language that they were using for TV, but not maybe yep. adapting as easily or, you know, well, it's a visual meeting. I should be me medium. I should be able to do this, but it's not, you have to look at the tools and the, and the, uh, the requirements the form. of the medium. Exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. Well, cool. Yeah. Um, so anyway, you're out on the wire. You uh, also did a, a podcast around that and that the book is sort of what led to that. Or vice versa? Well, neither led to either. I mean, I, it was my <laughs> choice to, you know, I wouldn't have, I would never have done the podcast without the book. So yes, it led to it. Definitely. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's for sure. But it was just a, a decision on my part to do it. It was not, you know, like I just was like, I want to do this thing. So I did it. And for me, the mission was to translate you know, to, to talk more about, like, I had all this extra material I couldn't use. You know how it is as a journalist, <laughs> right? There's all this stuff that you have. And it's like, oh, it's so awesome. And nobody's ever going to know about this. So that was one motivation, like, get this thing, you know, let people see all the extra stuff that feels wasted otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that was the initial motivation. But then I was like, well, but what's going to get people sort of, why would they want to listen to this thing? What's going to sort of, you know, make this justify its own existence? And so I came up with this idea that I would have it be expanding on the mission of talking about narrative and how narrative works and really specifically trying to broaden it out from just audio so that I felt like this definitely happens that people don't get, they don't draw the lines that I've been drawing in this interview between different media. Mm -hmm. And they, they read this as just about audio. You know, that there's, it has nothing to say about anything else. And certainly when they just sort of see it on the shelf, they're like, oh, book about radio. Great. I'm so excited. You know, if they're not into that, <laughs> they don't, you know, it doesn't, they don't understand like how this, you know, they're say fiction writers. They're like, how does this apply to me? And so I wanted to draw those lines really clearly for people. And so that's kind of where it came out of. Hmm. And it was really lucky for me actually, because I couldn't have guessed that, um, so I was living in France at the time in a residency at the Maison des Auteurs in Angoulême. And this is a cartoonist residency. And there was 
you know, what are the chances that in a cartoonist residency in Angoulême, France, that there'd be one other American cartoonist in residence who happens to be a trained by NPR audio producer interested <laughs> in all the same podcasts that I am writing about? What are the chances? Very slim, I would imagine. Very slim. I figured it was a sign. So when I talked to Ben Frisch, Benjamin Frisch, my producer, about doing this project, he was really excited about it. And I could not have done it without him. I mean, I would have like said to myself, oh, I'm going to do a podcast. And I would have started and been like, nope, I'm not doing a podcast. That would have happened. So yeah, I mean, all credit goes to him for making, making this go from like an idea to a reality for sure. And now he's working in audio. So, so there you have it. So it was it. I mean, you had this, this experience of, uh, you know, writing the book in 99 and, and writing this sort of follow up to it about audio storytelling. And then now you're doing, you're, you're producing an audio product, a podcast, were you able to apply the lessons that you had learned in the book or did you learn new oh, things? Oh, for sure. Oh, absolutely. Every day. I mean, I applied them to writing the book. Like mm. it, they're so applicable. Like it's such a, <laughs> such a useful book, I <laughs> say, you know, <laughs> including for me. It's a little uh, too hard sell. Okay. I'm just back off. Yeah, a hard little. sell. <laughs> it's very useful, everybody. No, but it is. It's like, a, you know, I got lost in the dark forest in the middle of the book, like most people do when they're mm. working on big, huge projects like this. And it was the book itself, you know, it was like my own research and the stuff that I'd already written and the, the interviews I'd already done that helped me get out of that and figure out what it was about and like what was important about it. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking of my the podcast too. You know, I was again going through the principles in the book, you know, in the context of the, the podcast, I was looking for new connections and new ways to put everything together you know, new quotes, new stuff, you know. And each time I did that, my understanding of the principles got richer. Hmm. So it, did you, again, we, I talked before about scratching a different part of your brain. Were you, I mean, was this sort of expanding a different part of your creativity? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was really, yeah, it was a really good thing for me. I mean, it was an enormous amount of work, and I'm glad that we did not set out to make this a, you know, ongoing project <laughs> forever because, uh, yeah, that's all I'd be doing now for sure. But, uh, yeah, I mean, learning how to write audio scripts, how to, how to voice, how to read scripts and how to, you know, getting better at interviewing, interviewing live, learning about editing, learning all these other things. Yeah. It was enormously valuable. Okay. And how did it change you as a as a storyteller, do you, do you, it, or did it, I mean, did you see things differently in your other work? To an extent, I think, you know, everything I have done has helped me see things differently. You know, every phase of my work sort of builds these things. And, and what I figured out, you know, now that I'm been doing this for a really long time, is how much my interests are consistent. So I just keep coming back to like the same stuff over and over again. Hmm. You know, the idea of narrative, you know, working on that in Radio and Illustrated Guide and then again in, you know, using it for various books and then, you know, doing it in drawing words and writing pictures and in mastering comics and then coming back to it and out on the wire and then in the podcast. It's like, it's a really interesting topic to me. I've taught it for years and years. You know, I was teaching a class called Storytelling many years at the School of Visual Arts and, you know, dealing with how stories work and how are they put together is just a really fascinating topic to me. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I you know I'm, I'm I'm sitting here thinking about a lot of different things. You know, I in a roundabout way we we set up this this interview because I had contacted you a few months back before you were moving, and I was going to interview you for the the book I was working on about podcasting, and just my own experience in you know interviewing people for that and writing the book uh, sort of changed a lot. You know, sort of reinforced a lot of things that I that I don't normally think about when you know as a as a working journalist. Uh, mm -hmm. And as a podcaster, you don't always think about the mechanics of what you're doing and why you're doing it and the creativity around it. You don't always think about that. And it's nice to do something, take a swim in the deep end and uh, and sort of explore different aspects. You know, I write every day, but I don't write books every day. So when I did, it, it sort of changed my perspective. And now I feel like there, there are other th types of things I want to do because of it. But it's all yeah, and I think that the, the the people I was interviewing for Out on the Wire are all journalists. Well, not all journalists, but most of them are journalists. And they found the process of being interviewed and having to think about this stuff very eye-opening for themselves. Yeah, because your journalists aren't usually interviewed. And if they are interviewed, it's usually about whatever the, the story they're covering. It's not really sort of about them or their process. Right, exactly. And they felt uncomfortable about this, you know? No, like, yeah. Excited, but they're also just like, oh, this feels really weird, you know? Yeah, no, that's actually, I mean, that's the rationale of this particular podcast is we interview journalists about how they do their job. And some of them, it, it comes quite easily to talk about and others, they're like, do you really want me to talk about that? You know, you know, how I do my job, you know, how I did this, this really kind of groundbreaking program that nobody's ever done before. Do you really want me to talk about that? And I said, yeah, I want to talk, talk about it. I want to see what goes into that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I talked to Jay Allison about his work and doing the moth and um, he, he's a producer of the moth radio hour among many other things. And he was saying that the journalists are pretty much the worst to interview. They're like <laughs> the most, you know, the least willing to kind of get emotional and let it happen. And I didn't find that true in my experience actually. And I don't know what you think, but, but I guess that's because, you know, one of the things that was nice about having done radio and illustrated guide, and as you said, you read it in grad school, everybody had read it. Like I had a calling card, you know, I came in as a known quantity, like somebody they could trust to, you know, tell tell the story right, or at least right enough. Mm -hmm. So yeah. that was really beneficial for me. You know, you know, if I just come in like, hey, I'm doing a thing, then, you know, I'm sure I would not have gotten that kind of access and that kind of, you know, vulnerability from people. Yeah, we've done over 200 episodes. So I would say the majority of the journalists that we've talked to have been very, my experience where I came from this was all the best stories that I ever heard or, or all the best conversations I ever got were in newsrooms, you know, yeah. <laughs> when, when, the mics are off. When, when the mics are off and people are just sh shooting shit and, and talking about this, you know, how they actually covered a story and like, yeah, I had all this go on and this went on and this went on. So I wanted to get people in and talk not so much about the specifics, but more about, you know, the process. And, and it's been a really, for me, it's been a real learning experience. And it, yeah, it sort of changed my changed my view thousandfold on 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 this this whole thing, but this is not about me. So oh, anyway. see, there you go. See, there's a journalist <laughs> for you. Yeah. What are you going to do? Uh, I'm in a, I'm in a studio and I'm talking to a microphone. So anyway, set up. Hurry up. Hurry up. Don't hurry say up. Anything. No, no. Yeah. Don't don't psychoanalyze me, please. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is my this is my podcast. I, I'm the one who's asking the questions here. Okay. I, I, sorry, okay. I'm sorry. I wrote That's a book okay. about this stuff. I, I have the right. I'm going to start crying. Well, I guess I'll be crying on the way home again. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. That's okay. No, it's not going to happen. Uh, I have no more tears.
So what are you working on now? What's next? I'm working on Trish Trash, Roller Girl of Mars. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's at, book one out now. Yeah, I saw the I saw the uh, saw the link on your uh, your website, which I'll include the link to your website. It looks pretty cool. Is it is it inspired it's, by anyone in particular? Journalism, of course. It's journalism. Cool. You know, roller derby, hover derby, the number one sport of the future. Okay. It's, no, it's <laughs> it's it's, through your time yeah. machine. Okay. Well, no, it's 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 fiction, which it's is sci-fi. fine. Yep. Well, cool. Yeah, my first sci-fi book. Cool. What inspired you to do that? You know, I cannot remember. Like, I remember literally what inspired me because I it was a, a drawing that I did as an illustration for drawing words and writing pictures. But I did it 10 years ago hmm. and started this book project 10 years ago. So I don't remember what it was that went made that go from like, oh, that was cool, that was funny, to I'm going to do a book about this. I mean, you know, roller derby and Mars, like – What's not good about that? But oh, that that old saw, yeah, yeah that, old, that right. old chestnut. <laughs> Roller derby on Mars. Come on, like, what's any questions? Like, what's the you know? Come on, please. Seriously, just take my money. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, cool. Well, I'm going to make sure that people have a link to that uh, with this story. This has been this has been a really fun conversation. I'm glad we we finally sort of made this happen and and had this talk. I think I learned a lot about storytelling, or at least. Enjoyed Thanks. talking about it. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music. And I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more, and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.